coming up on Self-Hosted Episode 10, we'll find out why it was a really good idea for Alex to run Cat6A in his new home. And a handy-dandy speed test app. And I'll give you a very expensive Project Off-Grid update. I'm Alex. And I'm Chris. And this is Self-Hosted. So it's 2020 now, Chris, huh? 2020 and Episode 10, two big moments. I think this is officially the future now, 2020. That's like a big number. 30 felt like a big age, but now I'm in the process of coming to grips with reaching nearly 40. And 40 feels like that's how old my dad was. 40 is old. That's, we have people, you can't say that, Alex. <laughs> you can't say that. I re, no, no, okay. So, so look, let, let me, let me just preface, preface this with when I was a kid, I remember my dad's 40th birthday being like a big deal. I know. That's what I'm saying. And now it's me. And 2020 feels the same way. And episode 10, not quite, that's more like episode 100, but episode 10 is important. One of my best friends just had his second kid today. So congratulations, Chris. Not you, the other, my Chris, Chris Hudson, my other friend. A lot of name conflicts with this one. I got, I got a name that just every office has a few Chris's in it. You, you can just shake a stick. So my parents picked Alex because they thought it was original, Alexander. When I got to preschool, there were five in my class of 22. <laughs> I suspect I was named after Superman, Christopher Reeves, because I think my mom had a thing for Superman. That's I, that's my theory. Oh, that explains the heaven. <laughs> so really, though, what's relevant for this show is to celebrate episode 10, we're, we're introducing a few corners to the podcast. We are. And we need to start with Camera Corner this week, because while we were on holiday break, Wise went and had themselves a bit of a data compromise. And just about the entire internet wanted us to know about it, because we've talked about those Wise cams here on the podcast. I'm so sad. Those Wise cams were like the panacea. I don't know. I mean, 25 bucks each, right? You kind of, you know, when, it, when it's that good of a deal, there's a higher risk profile, most likely. There's got to be something wrong with it. And... There, there have been other uh, cameras, like from Sonoff, they're just releasing a pan-tilt-zoom camera as well, which will run, I believe, Tasmota firmware. So there are other games coming into this town as well. So luckily, even though Wise appear to have had a few missteps, which we'll cover now, I guess. Yeah, so I guess let's, let's talk about what happened. Um, it looks like it was essentially an operational error. Their production database was duplicated and for a bit put out into the public. Now, this group that likes to call themselves security researchers, but they're really just sort of stunt actors, had a lot of fun with this. They came across this, and they contacted Wise and gave them very little notice. Stunt actors. Yeah, they were. <laughs> that's, just, that's just funny. Well, they're just completely irresponsible, so they can't really call, you can't really call them security researchers. It's really a shame what happened to Wise, but at the end of the day, it was their mistake. Mm-hmm. So device information, like tokens associated with your echo integration user email address, your camera nicknames, your Wi-Fi network information, and WISE device information were in this public database. There was nothing to do with credentials. However, I think, I think Amazon has reset everybody's tokens. And there was also a small number of users who were beta testing, I think, a scale, a WISE scale. And so some body metric information was public. It doesn't seem clear if it was accessed by anyone other than this research group. But I think it's something we touched on with our chat with Quindor last episode, and that is these companies have to become infrastructure experts when they roll out a cloud service that goes along with their product. Well, everybody's a software company these days. Look at John Deere Tractors. Yeah, 
Yeah, and so that's why when this news came out, I was frustrated that you know any inf- information that was in the app at the time I set up these cameras may have been leaked. But my cameras are fully offline. They're blocked from Wise Services. They're reflashed with the RTSP firmware. And I use them via Shinobi, and I don't use the cloud service at all. So I'm not as concerned about a compromise, but it's still really disappointing to see it. I kind of knew something like this could potentially happen. They're new. The products are cheap. It seems possible. I think one thing's clear to me when working in the industry that there's a lot of people who like to spam their resumes and CVs with technology names and they don't necessarily have enough experience to back it up. You know, um, people want 10 years of DevOps experience. Well, what does that even mean? Like DevOps hasn't really even been around for 10 years as a concept. So yeah, People want, you know, a good example in in my line of work, 10 years of of OpenShift, 10 years of Kubernetes experience. Well, good luck. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, it's like one part of joke, but it is also a real problem. And everybody thinks they're an expert. And it's not just the small guys. Like, I'm picking on Wise here, but Yaome, the ginormous Chinese corporation, had some sort of issue on their backend proxy service. So Google had to completely disable the ability to pull up Yaume cameras because it was showing other folks' cameras inside other homes. You'd, you'd ask the Google Smart Home to show your camera, and it would show you somebody, a complete stranger's camera. That was freaky. I remember looking at that one on Reddit and seeing just the video and the, the kind of panic almost that, uh, that Reddit went into frenzy over that one. And for once, it was justified. And Google pulled the plug pretty quick that day. I'm kind of glad they can. They just re- revoked Xiaomi's token and, uh, you know, they're good to go. That's why I was pretty impressed when you were setting up your own self-hosted cameras at the new place. So you're, you're in the new house now. I am. And you have been on a project streak. I've been, I've been so impressed with how much you've actually just gotten done. Like, you're not waiting around. You've got thermostats, cameras, lighting. I mean... Garage door was so much to talk about, Alex, but I, why don't we talk about the cameras that you installed? Because it's perfectly in line with the camera corner. Well, so in, in the last house I was renting, and this one, uh, we bought a house, and uh, I can run Ethernet, so I can do what I want. Oh, yeah. So I've run Cat6A from the basement to the attic. That was the f- that was literally the, f- the first big job that we did. So my server's down in the basement, and I've got a humidity sensor down there, and so far it's not been above 63 64%, so we're looking looking tasty on the basement front isn't that nice to know in a new place mm-hmm. and that all, all that information gets fed into home assistant and therefore grafana so i could already look back at the last two three weeks worth of data and say we've had a bit of rain not too much and um say look my basement is fine i don't need a dehumidifier or whatever that's so cool so running cat six six a because and here's, here's the reason uh, i wanted to future proof it so that i could run 10 gig over copper. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. I'm curious if you're also doing PoE for these cameras. I am. Yeah, so I looked at a bunch of options. Uh, Unify makes some really great gear, but ultimately I didn't want to be locked into their kind of proprietary ecosystem with the cameras. I had a couple of Nest cams from the last house uh, and a thermostat actually. Um, but after they retired the works with Nest API program, I just I have sworn off that Nest train. Yeah, that's your warning shot if you don't learn your lesson from that. Yeah. Um, so I wanted something that was completely not going to rely on the vendor ever. Um, so I went, I bought two different brands of cameras to try out, and I, I like them both. Um, so I bought an Amcrest 4K IP8 
M-T-2499-E-W. It rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? And then that's plugged into Shinobi with an RTSP feed. So those were my requirements, really. PoE, yeah, RTSP. Absolutely. And then the rest, generally speaking, comes, you know, they do night vision, they do all the rest of it. And they're working pretty well and pretty reliably. Yes, perfect, dude. Every time I log into Shinobi, it's right there. Now, I haven't actually had the time to go in and configure like motion and that kind of things so, like recordings and stuff. But I tried a couple of different ways to run Shinobi. The first one was out of a Docker container that my friend Alex wrote. He's one of the Linux server guys. And it was fine, but I was getting about a 10, five to 10 second lag and I couldn't really figure it out. And so I hopped onto the Discord with uh, Mo is Cool, who I think is part of the Shinobi project. And he helped me out with a few different things. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I know it is, right? I love open source. And um, I built an Ubuntu VM on my ESXi box and I'm running Shinobi in there and my lag is down to maybe one, one and a half seconds. There you go. As in, I can hear a car door close outside and it's it's sort of... That's pretty good. Yeah, I like it a lot. So like if I hear a van pull up, um, there's no window behind me, so I can't see the front driveway from where I'm sat. But I just have Shinobi on a screen next to me all the time, and I can see perfectly what's going on in 4K. It's it's great. So Am- Amcrest was one of them. Amcrest, okay. And then the other one, I bought a pair of Rio Link cameras. Now, the reason I bought three cameras was because the Amcrest 4K was about 100 bucks. The Rio Links were about 50 bucks each. They don't have 4K, I don't think, um, but they're like 2.5K five megapixel sensors. So my rationale for that was I want the the camera I'm going to use the most is the driveway. And then the other cameras I'll use, I'll put one in the back garden and watch the deer run past. Yeah, sure. (laughs) And then have another one looking, you know, up the street. 4K is nice, not just for future proofing, but also for getting enough resolution to read license plates in the driveway and stuff. That's where 4K can be nice. I can see individual raindrops in the puddles outside my house. It's phenomenal. It's, It's so great. So out of the couple there, though, the two brands, sounds like you like the slightly more expensive Amcrest ones. I do, but is it worth twice the price? I don't know. If you were to do a blind test and put them on a 1080p screen, which in reality, they're only ever going to be one quarter of a 1080p panel for 99% of their life. I couldn't tell the difference, you know? So is it worth it? Probably not, but I've already bought it, so... (laughs) And they'll probably last quite a while. I do hope so, yeah. I'm really curious to know if anyone has suggestions for me, because I have, I'm pretty satisfied with interior cameras, but now I want exterior cameras. That would be really nice. Somebody was in the yard just the other day. A rando was in our yard the other day. And the only one I have is the dash camera. Something like this, I really like the idea, although I've been not a big fan of running Ethernet in an RV. Yeah, I can imagine. Something I can mount on the outside. And i tell you what, PoE switches are a whole minefield of different standards and specs and voltages and all sorts of nonsense. Oh yeah, was that a rabbit hole? Did you like spend forever doing research and stuff? It was. It was about an evening. I, I wasted about maybe four or five hours just researching PoE switches. Uh, and I settled on a $100 Netgear 8-port PoE switch, which is compatible with my two Unify access points as well as the three cameras. And it will do, I think, like 80, 90 watts or something total. So it's going to be totally fine for what I need. So before we completely get out of camera corner, I did want to ask you about that. Sounds like these are all Ethernet, but you did install new APs. I bought a pair of Unify AP 
AC pros when I lived in London because my my flat in London was long and thin with brick walls. Even though it was a 700 square foot apartment, I still needed two of the down things to get signal at the front and the back of the house. I have two for my RV. Just I assume it's the metal wall or something. It kills signal. So I have one in the bedroom and one in the living room. Yeah. So I still I'm still running the Unify controller in the cloud uh, on a, a droplet with DigitalOcean. And uh, yeah, I'm now actually using the Unify component of Home Assistant to do presence detection. And one of the other projects which we'll get to in the next episode is my automated garage door opener. And so I'm actually using the presence detection of Unify and Live360 combined to automatically open my garage door and all sorts of stuff. But we'll get to that. Oh, boy. Okay. So... I am currently watching the Wi-Fi market to see what direction I want to go. I'm not huge on the requirement of the Unify controller. Not huge on that. And I would love to see somebody come along and really challenge Unify. Well, it's not a requirement, okay? It's just when, when you want to set it up, you can do it through the app these days. And if the controller goes away, these APs will continue working forevermore until you reconfigure them. I mean, the Home Assistant integrations really might put it over the top. <laughs> just, I just love Home Assistant so much that if it works with Home Assistant, I'm like, well, I'll use a controller then. Cool, Alex. Well, congratulations on the on the move and congratulations on the new setups. You've really, I, sometimes, you know, you can let that stuff get away and never get to it and build and all these projects build up, but you have been cracking. Oh, I've been so excited about this house, you know? So how the heck did you find time for our little app this week? So when you're running Ethernet, it turns out you want to figure out whether what you've run is actually capable of what you hope it is. Of course. I found an app called LibreSpeed, which is, uh, you can run in a Docker container, and I do on my uh, server. And this thing, it's a little web app that you can run in a browser. There's an Android app as well. And uh, the HTML5 version should work in the browser of an iOS or any other flavor of device. So I love this for myself. I threw this on a Docker container in the RV, and when I move about, it's a very simple, reliable, and reproducible way for me to measure the speed of my connection. And one of the things that it highlights, which is extremely important to me, is the actual jitter level of your connection, which can have a huge impact on VoIP calls. It's nice if you think about the possibilities here. So normally we rely on like speedtest.net to figure out how fast our Wi-Fi is, how fast our 4G is, all that kind of stuff. And... A lot of providers actually seriously prioritize that traffic because they know that people will call into the call center and say, hey, my my internet's only getting 300. You promised me 400, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So a lot of providers actually really prioritize those packets heavily. So a really good way to test you're getting what your ISP says you should be getting is to just run some normal traffic to a self-hosted droplet. Yeah, or run it on a droplet and or a VPS of whatever provider and ensure that you're getting the speeds that you're paying for because it's so simple to start. It it took me seven seconds to get it up and running in a container. So <laughs> We'll put a snippet of the Docker Compose YAML in the show notes, um, but it is super duper simple to, to run and it shows you your ping and your jitter, like Chris said. But for me, the most important thing was I could run it on my desktop plug it into the ethernet that I'd just run and see that I was getting that gigabit speed that I wanted. So not only could I plug in my ethernet cable tester and check the pairs were all okay, I could check that the two 300 foot run that I'd just done was actually giving me the speeds between my desktop and my server that I wanted. I could also make a half bonus suggestion for stat ping in this category too. Hmm. I'll put a link to stat ping in the show notes. And that just gives you an overall health check of the quality of your connection 
the average response time, the 24-hour uptime, and your overall uptime for the last seven days. And it gives you a graph of that. So you can see how reliable your connection's been, which is super handy for me. Status.ktz.cloud is my stat ping instance. <laughs> there you go. I'll tell you what's interesting was when I moved house, so I went from AT&T Fiber to Spectrum, which is a Doxis 3.1 cable connection. Same as Virgin Media in the UK, I think, use. And um, I noticed my my average response time went from about 8 milliseconds to about 35 milliseconds. Ooh. Womp womp. <laughs> Yeah, you were a little worried about it, maybe justifiably so then. Hmm. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I've I've sacrificed my gigabit upload for 35 meg upload, which hurts, but it's a nice house. <laughs> it's, it's an opportunity to just engineer things slightly different. That's how I look at it. I mean, that's where my whole Project Off-Grid thing really came from. So what's going on with Off-Grid then? So Project Off-Grid is my personal project to essentially get a bit of an internet presence while offline. Uh, I've moved all of my IoT devices to be controlled by Home Assistant, been setting up things like offline readers and caches of, of movies and games. And part of this project off-grid has always eventually been solar. So that way I could be off-grid in terms of power generation as well. So I'm starting to look at that right now because there's a lot of other motivating factors. Our our setup right now is it's a 50-amp connection to shore. So when I'm plugged into shore power, I've got 50 amps of power to work with. That's plenty. When I am mobile, it's much less. It's an 1,800-watt inverter. So I have about eight – it can go up to 2,000, but it's an 1,800-watt inverter. And um, I've got two lithium-ion batteries. It's not very much room to work with. So I've been planning to upgrade the whole system and I'm ready to make the I'm ready to make a plunge and I, I kinda wanna run past you with what I think I'm gonna do for Project Off Grid. How long can you go on battery power then? Right now, um about anywhere between six to twelve hours in a really kind of conservative run just the bare minimum, keep the fridge on, a few lights and maybe the TV. Oh, that's right. You've got to run a flipping fridge. Yeah, I've got a residential fridge. Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a forty foot R V, so it's a big it's a big R V and there's a lot of lot of stuff in there, and only a few of the plugs are on the inverter. And the inverter is a modified sine wave, so it really messes with my audio equipment. It creates a lot of buzz in the audio. It's bad. And the UPSs, I take it. And it's aggressive. And, and it does not work with UPSs. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at going with three solar panels. I, they, I, I have room for more, but I kind of want to start small at first because I am in the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> which would bring in... 510 watts of solar, but would in theory be expandable to 1,000 watts. Yeah, I have the room and the system could handle it. So what are you realistically expecting from that 500-watt panel in Seattle? Well, or when I travel, you know, outside of Seattle, down in Arizona or Texas. Yeah, that's a good point. I'll tell you what, you know, that's probably your more usual use case for the solar, right? Not not at home. Mm -hmm. Good point. Yeah, and while you're going down the road, it'll it'll be charging too. Um, But... Even, even say at Linux Fest Northwest, there's sun sometimes, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was quite sunny last year. So, uh, the idea would be that it sort of supplements your power and go, you go from maybe being able to stay parked for 12 hours, which would be really kind of tight right now to maybe 24 hours to kind of bring in a little supplemental power. I have a generator on board too, which I can run and charge up the batteries. I can't currently do that. Burning those dead dinosaurs is effective. It's very effective. So that's why I kind of thought I'd go balanced. I'd go with just 510 watts of solar, 
plus I have a generator. So between the two of them, I could charge up a battery bank. And then as part of this, add three more 100-amp-hour Battleborn lithium batteries, a Victron MultiPlus 3000VA inverter, and upgrade the alternator charging system in the RV engine so it can charge this battery bank. Because at, at, when it's all said and done, there'll be like five or six lithium-ion batteries this thing's got to charge. And so what's your expected runtime at the end of this? I don't have a final number yet. What do you want? I'm shooting for 24 or 48 hours. Well, 24 or 48, that's, you know, there's only a 100% difference there. <laughs> I know. Well, it depends on if my current lithium-ion batteries are usable or not. Okay. I'm working with a company called AM Solar. Really, really well-known, well-respected, good craftsmanship kind of company based out of Oregon. Do you have a guess on what this rough price for a system like this would cost? Oh, Lord. So I was looking at solar for the roof of my house, uh, like with just with like this Tesla Powerwall stuff. Like, I, I, I'm not... I'm not in a position to buy it, but it was like 15 or 16 grand. Mm -hmm. So this is a much smaller scale system, but then again, it's in an RV, so it's got to be earthquake proof. So I'd, I'd say similar. Let's go 10, 15 grand, something like that. Yeah, it's 15 grand. Oh, wow. 15 grand. Yeah. Um, now that takes the whole system and replaces my entire electrical system. It's a pure sine wave inverter. All of my outlets would be powered which is actually pretty important since I have a CPAP and other things. Mm -hmm. And it would mean we'd have the capability when we were visiting somewhere that wasn't wired for an RV. This is such a cool feature. And you could plug my entire RV into a standard wall outlet with an extension cord, like you would a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and the Victron system, you set it, you say, hey, I'm on a, I'm on, you, you set it, say, don't use more than 15 amps from shore power. The Victron system, if, if once you have that set, when it senses load more than the 15 amps, it will pull the additional power it requires from the battery bank. So that way you can just keep on using stuff in the RV. You can peak above 15 amps and it'll just make up the difference from the batteries. And that, for the style of travel we do, would be so killer because I show up in the RV to do a podcast about a place. We did this at Dell. We did this at Linux Academy. We just, we've done this so often and they're not wired for an RV. Like they can give me some power. But they're not, it's not an RV park. And this would let me hang there for days at a time, get the work done, and have just, just the right amount of power. I don't even know how that would work. It's amazing. That is magic to me. It really is pretty cool. And with that, I would be completely off grid because we'd, we'd have, we'd be generating our own power. We store our own water. We'd have our own network with Home Assistant that does all of this automation off grid, offline. Mm hmm. It's really cool. It's really close. And so I was talking to the shop because they're a really in-demand place. And they were telling me, if I do it in January, February, I can probably get it done in the next six months. If I go much beyond January, February, it's, they're, at, they're booked months out. Well, six months is still booked months out, in my opinion. <laughs> they must be in demand. So here's another, another suggestion. Um, there's, a, there's a program on YouTube called Fully Charged, which is by... What's the name of the guy in Red Dwarf with like the, the blocky face? Robert Llewellyn, I think is his name. He runs a YouTube show called Fully Charged and they talk all about electric cars and electric vehicles and stuff. And he was showing off some cool stuff with using his Tesla as, as like a power wall for his house. 
So not only did he have the power wall on the wall, but he was using his car as a residual battery pack as well. So I'm wondering if you ever bought an electric car, you could plug it into this inverter system and then go and charge your car at a fast charger and then bring that electric home. Or charge the car while the RV is going down the road. The RV is generating power, more power than I can use, Mm -hmm. because the alternator is running, the solar would be collecting power. If I could charge an electric vehicle that I was towing behind the RV while I'm driving, and then I would get to my destination and my car is fully charged. But additionally, this is something I've actually been looking into. A lot of electric vehicles have regenerative braking, you you know, about regenerative braking. If if you're towing an electric vehicle behind an RV and using its braking, doing what's called four-down towing, where all four wheels are down on the road when you're towing the electric vehicle, and you use the brakes of the electric vehicle, it does, in fact, charge the batteries of the electric vehicle. As an F1 guy, I love all of that stuff, like trickling down into road cars and things. Yeah, yeah. Because a few years ago, they brought in something called KERS, Kinetic Energy Recovery System, which they were like, oh, this is going to be the future of the road car. And everyone at the time was like, nah, what, what a load of BS. But no, it's actually real and people are actually using it and it's the future. I just don't know. I mean, this you know, $15,000 is such a massive commitment so how much of it can you take with you if you were to ever replace dupes with something else? Like how much can you take with you? And you could take probably the panels and parts of it, but I would probably be more inclined to leave it in because it, it adds a considerable amount of value to the RV. This is a top-of-the-line system and installed by AM Solar, so it's top-of-the-line installers too. That's always the thing when you want to put an extension on your house. Like when we were looking at houses in North Carolina, they had swimming pools. And we were like, oh, does a swimming pool add value? And the realtor was like, nope. So you could spend 50 grand on putting a swimming pool in and get none of it back. So Yeah. But a solar system, on the other hand, mm-hmm. that is pretty, especially in the RV space, everybody wants solar eventually. It's something that's been on my list. Um, let me know what you think about that. If, you're, if you've got experience with the Victron system, especially, this is, this is an esoteric ask, but if anybody... If anybody's going to be out there that would have any information on this, it's our audience. If you know how to use, say, Bluetooth or something like that to get the stats out of a Victron unit into Home Assistant and then into Grafana, please contact me. Because this is a big part of what I want to do is have real-time information on how much power my entire system is using. And then I want to graph it over time. And then I want to teach people how to do this. So I'd really love to hear from somebody self-hosted.show slash contact or at Chris Elias on Twitter. And let me know because, man, oh man, I, I think the potential there, the kind of data I could pull off these units that are running and monitoring everything could be phenomenal. Eric got in touch with us via self-hosted.show slash contact to say, I just wanted to send a quick thanks for the show and sharing Alex's favorite smart plug. I just ordered the four pack of the Tekin SP20 plugs, figured out what Tasmota is and did the <laughs> over the air flash with the amazing two-year convert script. Yes. Awesome. Well done. That is good to hear. Yeah. And now they're yours forever. Absolutely are. That is so cool. The other one that I really recommend, so the SP20s are great. They they seem to work pretty well with two-year convert. And um, the other one is the SS31 that Tekken make. And this is, this is a pretty cool one. It's got four AC outlets and four USB plugs. And there are five relays in there. So you can, can, you can turn on and off all the USB ports at once. And then each of the AC ports has its own relay in it as well. And, and they work flawlessly with two-year convert on a, I'm using my Raspberry Pi 4 and it, 
takes, I get it out of the box and within maybe two minutes, this thing has Taz motor on it. When you say it, you say it like two-year convert, but it's two-year convert. T-U-Y-A convert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> two-year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, great. That's really awesome. It is awesome. Uh, I'll tell you what else is awesome. Smart doorbells. So David Carollo, I'm sorry if I butchered that name. Uh, I'm talking about ring doorbells, camera devices, etc. Any advice on installing your own? Oh, great question. Ring did just issue an update, by the way, allowing you to opt in or not if your footage is shared with law enforcement. Nice to see. But I think everyone's been scared off the product, but they've sort of proven out that there's some usefulness to it. I disagree. So one of my new neighbors invited me to his poker night on uh, Friday, and um, it was really interesting. Actually, It was very eye-opening for me to to hear what normal people think. Oh, this is this is absolutely good on-the-ground research. I attend these kinds of things myself as well. Yeah. And they were talking about all the different streaming services they're subscribed to and and about, oh, have you seen this show? It's on Hulu. Have you seen that one? It's on Amazon. You know, it was just, it was really fun to listen to sort of normal, non-technical people talk about this stuff. But the other thing they were talking a lot about were ring doorbells. And they were like, oh, they're amazing. They're so great. Like, I've got one on my garage door and one on my front door and one on my back door. And I'm like, so you've got three of these things? Oh, yeah, we just pay the subscription and I can look back 30 days in my history and all that. I'm like, ah, oh, okay. Like trying to play the dumb, ignorant guy to get them to tell me more stuff. You just turn up the accent a little bit. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> this is such good data, though, because you get an idea of what compels and appeals the average consumer. Right. Yeah. Normal people. Yeah. As much as I love you, Chris, you and I are not normal people. No. I know. The things that we think are important in a device, not what the regular consumer thinks is important in the regular, in the real world. To give you an example, the the first project I tackled in my new house was running Ethernet. Most people would replace the toilet flappers that were were running for days on end as the first job. No, I ran Ethernet. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, what that led me to was looking at different doorbell options and seeing what was out there. And I came across a YouTube video by a company called Nelly's Security. And they make $140, yes, that is expensive for a doorbell. Um, They make $140, 3 megapixel, 30 frame per second, uh, 1080p doorbell. And this thing supports OnVIF, so it will plug straight into Shinobi and any other NVR that speaks that language. And it also has a micro SD card built into it inside. It's uh, They seem like a really good company. So the, the I'll put a link to the YouTube video in the show notes. And it seems like a normal guy just making a video about his company. So um, if you're listening and want to send me one for review, I'll do that. <laughs> I'm going to buy one right now. Are you, you haven't bought one? No, not yet. Oh, well, I will buy one because I need something that is offline for the RV. And um, the Ring doorbell used to integrate with Home Assistant, even if you didn't want to pay for the service, and over the holidays... They killed it. They killed the integration. Merry Christmas to me. And they killed the API. They ring turned it off. And now I can't just go grab stills from the camera and show it in Home Assistant. Oh, disgusting, isn't it? It's so it's so frustrating. So I'm going to buy this, and I'll tell you if it works or not. You don't own the hardware. And I know I sound like I'm on a soapbox. I kind of am. If you require a cloud service or an API to retrieve an image, to access the feed or whatever... 
via the company's cloud service, you do not own that hardware. And that's one of the reasons that Taz Motor on those smart plugs is so great. And that's one of the things I think that makes this doorbell so good is that if you want it to remain 100% local on your LAN forevermore until the hardware physically stops working, it will. When I'm making these purchase decisions at this new house, those are my minimum viable requirements now. I can't stress that enough. It really is a mind shift. When you reflash something or you get it controlled locally, you look at it and you go, I can use this forever now. And over the holidays, I was gifted some smart some smart lights. And it really, like the apps, they just suck. The whole thing is just, it's really just awful. And just being able to just be done with all of that is so nice. So I, I, I am the same way now. If I'm going to spend my money, I'll find out. This is the rare case where I don't actually look ahead of time. But since you and I both want to know, and it'd be interesting to talk about in the show, I'll go ahead and I'll grab this. I really like this to work. So I'm going to, I'll pick up this, uh, this smart doorbell and I'll let you know. Fantastic. Can you call it smart? I mean, it's a camera doorbell. What makes it smart? I guess it would be the stuff built into Shinobi for like motion detection and all the rest of it. Yeah. I like that it has built in support for that uh, security camera standard. That's really nice. On VIF. Yeah. Yeah. On VIF. That really put it over the top for me. When you mentioned that the other week, I didn't know what it was, but now I've done a bit of camera research. I understand that that's quite an important standard for NVRs and stuff. So Right. And the Wise cams do not support that. I'd love to see Wise add support for that. To be honest with you, I, I still like the Wise cams for internal capture, but I think they're more casual cameras than, than the ones that you got. So that's something for people to keep in mind. Thanks to Eric and David for their feedback. If you want to leave your own feedback, you can reach us in many different ways. At Self Hosted Show on Twitter, I'm at Ironic Badger. I'm at Chris LAS. Self Hosted.show slash contact is the web address. And Self Hosted.show slash 10 for this episode. Mm-hmm.